And welcome to another edition of Racing Through Time, the NASCAR podcast covering the 1986 Winston Cup racing season. We are on show number four, and we are actually on race number five, covering the Valleydale 500 from the Bristol International Raceway at the time. And I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Andy Waddell. And Andy, how are you doing this week? Boy, I am more excited than a Bama fan at a family reunion. I'm telling you, this is going to be a good week. Oh, boy. So this week we are covering the race uh, from a track that's familiar to us because basically it's about an hour up the road. And uh, we've got Bristol, and this is not Bristol as you know it now at all. The the track was front stretch, back stretch, and a death hill. Uh, at that point where people, as they point out during the broadcast, uh, I don't know if they paid for tickets up there, Benny. No, they didn't, Bob, because you're you're likely to die if you roll off of that hill. Mountain goats didn't even go up that hill where these people were sitting. No, they were up there. But they had a good view of the track, I'm sure. As always, uh, our fa- you, can join, you can check this show out anytime. Go to our Facebook, um, join our group there that we're trying to grow. It's called Racing Through Time. If you just type that in, you'll find it on Facebook. Uh, find us on Twitter at OPR Word. And you can check out all the motorsports news from my affiliate, On Pit Road, at On Pit Road. We are also now on Apple, iTunes. We're on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and a couple of the other podcast players are coming soon. So. We're trying to get out there to where it's easier for you to listen to us, wherever you're trying to listen from. Andy, uh, we've had a couple of races now. We're into the 1986 season. We're getting ready to hit Bristol. I didn't know exactly what to expect when we started this podcast. Um, have you Has there been anything that's surprised you so far as we have covered these 1986 races? I guess not really surprised, but I, I, it was a pleasant surprise. I'm, I forgot how good the racing was, and how much control the drivers actually had during this time period with the cars. And it wasn't, you know, the car didn't stick to the pavement, you know, an inch off of it. They were bouncing around, beating off one another. You had personalities when you went and did interviews. So far, I'm loving it. Oh, yeah, definitely. So this week, the 1986 uh, Valleydale 500 this is the fr- this is going to be the first week where I didn't really find a whole lot of interesting news articles, so there's not any news articles to really discuss this week. Um, NASCAR was making some rules changes that um, was going to affect the GM cars to try to help the Fords out, and I think that'll probably come into play a little more for the next race at Darlington because Bristol really wasn't a horsepower track anyway. It was just trying to hook those tires up to the track and get some traction at, at Bristol. It's not really a uh, big horsepower track in 1986. No, the most important part of the car seemed to be on this race, the right rear. Oh, yeah, hanging it out on the right rear, those bias ply tires. Everybody's smoking the right rear tire. That's one cool thing about back then. It was They really could hang the car out on the right rear, which is something that you just don't see. And that's something that was definitely prevalent back then. We'll jump right in to the race and Andy, any surprise, it may be a complete drought in East Tennessee 
90% of the year, but anytime the Bristol race comes around, it seems to be raining and it was raining in 1986 too. So the track had been wet. And I mean, when I say it had been wet, it's, uh, they're rolling the cars and the track is wet. Still the inside of the track is very wet. The, the, that's what surprised me about the whole thing. The the entire track is wet, and we're talking puddles are still formed on the racetrack in the infield. Pit Road was like a little miniature swamp, and they were still going to let them go, and I'm like, oh, dear Lord. Yeah, and this is Pit Road, remember, that has no Pit Road speed limits, so you have a car with racing slicks on getting ready to come down the pits that doesn't have to slow down just enough to get into their pit box and you're talking about wet i'm sure that the guys holding that pit sign out standing on pit road was uh was puckering a little tighter that day yeah because that's another thing i had forgot about this is before they had the poles with the pit you know with the pit sign on it the guys were actually going out there and standing in front of the car going whoa yeah whoa slow down please here at the beginning of the race of course. Oh, this is our first race this year. Thank God. After we had that Atlanta debacle, even though we got to make fun of it, it was a, it was an awful broadcast, but now we get ESPN. We get Bob Jenkins and Benny Parsons and you can't, they, they don't ever, they don't mess up and they're really good at what they do. It's, it's such a refreshing change to have two guys that actually know what they're talking about and be able to even if you're not watching the race or if you look away, but you still have the headset on or you was walking around and you had the TV on, you don't have to be watching. Bob and Benny can paint the picture for you, even though they're, they're broadcasting a race that you're watching on TV. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it here in a little bit, but Benny Parsons, my Lord, I had forgot the wealth of knowledge this man had. He could watch a car, see what kind of smoke it had, and tell you exactly what went wrong with it. Oh, yeah. It it was amazing. He would be able to tell you something that was going to happen laps before it would happen just by watching the cars. It was, he was just in tune and uh, one of the better, one of the better broadcasters in NASCAR history. He knew his stuff and he knew exactly what was going on on the track. And you got to remember back in 1986, he was still running quite a few of the races. So it's not like he was one of these guys that's been out of the car for 10 or 15 years trying to tie it back into when he drove, he's still driving these cars. He knows exactly what it feels like. Yeah. And uh, what was it? Ricky Rudd was, was that the one that was driving the same car as he was? And he said, he's proven that it can be done. So I've got to go out and do it too. No, Red's driving a Ford. Uh, Benny was, was driving it? a um, Buick, and Morgan Shepard won in the Buick the week before. I think Benny, or no, maybe Benny drove an Oldsmobile then. He drove a General Motors car. He drove one of the 18 brands of GMs that was in NASCAR at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's what had me confused, because they're like, we got Pontiac, we got Oldsmobile, we got you know Chevy. I'm like, how many cars are there? There was plenty. There was uh, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, and Chevrolets all out, out out there with the Fords. So the track, like we said, it's wet, so we learned that we're going to start this race under caution. Uh, Jeff Bodine was on the pole. He set a new track record. Neil Bonnet outside. The rest of the top ten was Tim Richmond, Terry Labonte, Harry Gant, Dale Earnhardt, Daryl Dar- Waltrip, Ricky Rudd, Joe Rutman, Bobby Allison, was the uh, final car in the top 10. 
So the winner of this is really weird. I mean, this shows you the sign of the times right here. Morgan Shepard wins a race in in an underfunded car. I'm, it's not a. It wasn't a bad car. The forty seven had some good races, but it wasn't a car that you would expect to see win much, if at all. And he goes from winning the race the week before, and he had won the Bush race, or the I guess they called it Sportsman then. The Sportsman race the week before, then he wins the Sportsman race at Bristol the day before. And here, Morgan Shepard is driving Elmo Langley's 64 Sonny King Ford after driving the 47 Buick the week before. And and for all it was, the 64 was one of the people that you would now say is what you call one of the also-rans or backmarkers. He's not even in the race very long before the car drops out. Yeah, but kind of reminds you of the start and, go, or start and stop ones that they had a couple of years back and... I don't know. It just it, like say you get used to nowadays. You've got a driver that's associated with a number for four or five years at a stretch minimum, and then here he's bounced around in three or four different cars within a month. Yeah, Morgan the Gypsy Shepherd in the '64 Sunny King car this this week. We finally we do get to go green, and I think it's eleven laps into the race. I found out later that's when they actually wave the green flag. And something happens to Bodine. He drops back pretty fast. Bonnet, Labonte, and Earnhardt all go by. Uh, we have Jody Ridley, who's driving the 70. This is weird, too. Uh, Lake Speed was in the top 10 in points. He was ninth in points, and he had gave that Raymock car a pretty good run the first three weeks. And it's not exactly a car that was, you know, would burn it up on the circuit. It was not bad. It was kind of in the middle. And Lake Speed was doing a really good job, and all of a sudden they fire him after after the race at uh, Atlanta. Yeah, something another one of those things you never see today with the guaranteed contracts and stuff. You know, you're in the top ten and you get fired for. And did did they ever tell why? I mean, or was it just I, a? I mean, I think they basically fired, based yeah. it on performance. Maybe the sponsors didn't didn't want to to keep Lake Speed in the car, and, and Jody Ridley was one of the best Georgia pavement drivers of all time. So it's, it's not like you're putting in a guy that's not any good. It's just strange to see a car driver that's in the top 10 in points, four races into the year, all of a sudden get kicked out. You know, if he's running 20th in the points or 25th and he had crashed as much as poor Kurt Bryant did. I mean, he, he, he retired the car owner. He crashed so much. And yeah, when you wipe out the whole organization, you've done something, but I mean, Lake Speed hadn't done anything that uh, looks like he should have been fired for. But anyway, Jody Ridley's in the 75. He almost crashes, and he's got a flat tire. He's trying to limp it around, and we see a shot of pit road, and, and man, it is – we've talked about it. It's wet. Uh, we have Terry Labonte on the track a couple of laps later here uh, trying to get by Neil Bonnet for the lead. They're in a lot of lap traffic. The top five, they're all pretty much right together. We were 21 laps in. Michael Waltrip, he's smoking. He's headed to the pits, and Shepard's in the pits, and they both basically uh, drop out of the race at the same time there. We have Dale Earnhardt smoking the right rear, and it, you, anymore, anytime you see smoke, you automatically think, well, they're about to blow the tire. They're about to crash. Well, back then, it was a common thing to see them smoke that right rear like he did, and uh, they would all do it. But Earnhardt, he would be one of the ones that would hang it harder out on the right rear than anybody else. Yeah, he was right on the verge of drifting, almost like a dirt track driving. 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're turning right almost as much as they're turning left. It's really weird to see them go into the corner and turn left, and you, you see the counter steer, counter steer, counter steer, left, right, left, right, and then they're straight for like uh, maybe two seconds, and they're right back into the next turn. It's that Back then with the cars being the way they were, it really had to – and that was before we – I know now, even though they have cool suits and they've got better technology, I know it's still hot. I'm not disputing that. But they didn't have the vented cool suits then, and the cars were harder to drive. I mean, them guys, they was they would put be put through the ringer when it would be a, like a 500-lap race at Bristol that's really intense. Yeah, and you got to remember that, uh, you know, at that time, the, the seats wasn't custom-fitted as, as much as they are now. And it was a whole different—the car bounced like crazy. I don't know if that was better for the driver or not compared to what they got now, but— the, you could watch it actually bounce going through the turns. That's that's what caught my eye. Oh, yeah. The one thing back then that probably was better, and I'm not saying it's better uh, because the cars are a lot safer now that you're in these containment seats, but then you had so much room to move around, you actually could look in the mirror, you could look behind you, you could kind of move around in the car a little bit. Uh, now you're you're basically stuck in, in your spot, and you can't even hardly move your head with the – head and neck restraint and you're you're squeezed into those seats so tight back then you it was almost like you you could if you wanted to you could just kind of slide on over and you could move yourself around during the race if you wanted to which is in hindsight not exactly as that safe well they were showing uh, you know inside the car where they were showing how they worked the pedals and you could see they had a lot of rib protection which i guess at the time that's what they're really trying to do you know they didn't want to break a rib and be out of the race and like you say, the whole upper body from about mid-torso up, there's nothing but the seat and your belts. And there was a lot more freedom as far as being able to see. Nowadays, shoot, they've got that sucker all the way up. They have. If it wasn't for the mirrors, they couldn't drive them. Oh, no. I mean, you're, you're stuck in it. And the one thing now with you being stuck in the seat the way you are, you do have a lot more head support. Uh, I mean, then you got to think all the G loads, those side G's at Bristol, the amount of pressure it puts on your neck. I bet those guys the next morning was having a hard time getting out of bed, just trying to pick their neck up off the pillow. Oh yeah. I said, well, let's see. What would it have been at that time? Probably being gay or icy hot, maybe some kind of liniment beer, yeah, you know, good, something along that line. Yeah, probably. Some goodies that you crush up and put in the, uh, put in the, uh, water and, because we have the Goodies Headache Powder Award back then, so I guess goodies could be used for a lot of things. We are now more, we click off some more laps. Top three, Jeff Bodine, uh, they're right together, and then Jeff Bodine and Bobby Allison are running fourth and fifth. They're just behind them. Uh, Jack Aroot, he says that he's talked to Junior Johnson, and uh, Daryl Walter was pr- pushing pretty bad. We have, we keep, Clicking off more laps, we get 52 laps down, and Neil Bonnet's still out in front and kind of in control of the race early. Uh, we learned that Willie T. Ribs tried to qualify. He actually did make an attempt at the Bristol race and didn't get in. He um, he crashed his primary car in practice, and I don't know if they put in a backup car or they tried to fix the primary car. Either way, his his effort was not good enough to get in the field. So 
Willie T. Ribbs still hasn't made a NASCAR start here. Um, and we learned that Benny says he's going to be trying again next week at Darlington. And that's, that's a tough hill to climb to make your first start too. Oh, definitely. I mean, you, you got to figure the two of the hardest tracks in the world. And that's the first, the first two you actually get a legitimate shot yeah. to try and qualify for that. That's, that's uphill sledding. Yeah, I mean, at least in Atlanta, the the track wasn't an easy track, but it was a mile and a half oval, and you could stay in it a little more in Atlanta. I mean, you really had to be able to wheel a car at Bristol and Darlington, so that's not easy to try to make your first two starts there. Uh, so we go, we keep moving on. The Dell Earnhardt and Terry Labonte, they have a they're racing pretty hard for second. We have Davy Allison in the thirty five. He is now smoking and headed to the pits. And then we uh, we get our first clip of the race. It's Neil Bonnet being interviewed. And then Neil Bonnet having a moment of trepidation. You have also said in the past that that might be your weak point, being undisciplined. I'm going to be disciplined if somebody beats on that back bumper. I'm going to beat on them. team uh, of course known for winning but neil bonnet has not visited uh, the victory circle in quite a few races and oh look at this he hits the wall in corner number two it looked like a tire went down benny and he just headed straight for the outside wall it sure did exactly it looked like he blew a right front tire and there's some heavy heavy damage to that automobile and, you know, Neil Bonnet doesn't need this. He did the same thing in Atlanta, blew a tire the last race three weeks ago. Boy, I tell you, what a terrible blow. I hope Neil's okay this time. I mean, that's pretty bad luck right there. You're, you're talking to the guy. He uh, talking about uh, one thing I like about Neil Bonnet. He says, you know, I don't care who it is. I'll, I'll push back. I'll hit back. And that's one of my problems. I've got to try to rein myself in just a little bit but as soon as they come out of this interview with him andy he just completely pounds the wall and well that's that's what caught me off guard about that the whole clip is he has that quiet confidence of somebody that you know you're like i ain't messing with him because he means what he's saying right here he's telling you know he's telling everybody straight up you know you you leave me alone i'll leave you alone you hit me after a couple of times, I might lose my temper and just break you in half. And then I got to thinking, well, shoot, did the wall touch him? Because he tried to take it out. He, I mean, he hit it hard. God, the one thing, and I know looking back over the years, I'm not sure any NASCAR driver, and, and I'm not going to be McCarb or anything, about his death at Daytona in, in the 90s, but I swear to God, I'm not sure if there is anybody that had more hard hits in NASCAR than Neil Bonnet, he, he killed the wall uh, a couple of weeks ago and at, at, at uh, Richmond 
he breaks his ankle at Atlanta, supposedly, or at least cracks it. And, for, and it, that wreck didn't even bring out a caution. And then here, leading the race at Bristol just absolutely obliterates the wall. He blows the right front, and that car was smashed. And here, well, I mean, we'll get to this here in a minute, but here's another one of those situations where they're still racing back to the line. And always before I was one of the traditionalists, you know, yeah, let them race back to the line. You know, it should be decided on the track. But then you go back and see some of these incidents where it led up to the rule they have now about the caution stopping it. And you see why it's like, well, he's out there. If he's bleeding or something, he's dead before they ever get there. Yeah. I mean, and and that's one thing that we talk about here. It takes them a few minutes to get bonnet out of the, out of the car. And I think some of it would may have been safety worker miscommunication or something because there wasn't people on top of him in time as quickly as you would hope. But at the same time, Benny Parsons points out that there's still the car, they, the cars going around Bristol so fast, they couldn't get a truck up across the track to him because the cars were spread out so much. And remember, this is still that time where God only knows when you're supposed to pit when the caution comes out. Cause you don't, <laughs> You don't wait till a pace car picks you up. So the pace car kind of just blends into the race and slows everybody down. Eventually that's, I'm not exactly, I still don't, we might cover this entire season and I still don't think I'm going to exactly understand how this works. Yeah. I still, I still haven't figured out when you pit, if you, if it's in front of the pace car or on the second Sunday of the third November, or I don't know, it's, it's weird. It, it, it is very strange, but I feel sorry because you could tell Bonnet's hurt. He does eventually get out of the car, and then he sits down for a second uh, to try to compose himself, I guess. And then he gets up, and he realizes there's not an ambulance coming, so he's just going to walk on across the track. And then we we catch an interview with him as he gets off the track, and here is that interview. Back pits here. Neil, first of all, are you okay? I don't know. I the throttle hung wide open. I backed out of the gas, and the car just kept pulling, and I was standing on the brake and just kept going straight. You stayed in the car for so very long, though. Did you get knocked out? Well, I thought I was, but I couldn't get any help out there, so I just had to get out. Well, we're going to let him go off to the medical attention here at Bristol International Raceway and throw it back up to you people. All right, Jack, thank you very much. Uh, once again, Neil has mentioned the fact that uh, he's not as pleased as he could be with the speed of the medical teams at some of the NASCAR Winston Cup races, Benny. Well, I, you know, I understand exactly what he's talking about. Uh, he was sitting there. He was hurting. The only problem that I, that I got is that he can't get the other 30 or 31 guys out there to slow down well enough for the medical guys to get out there. Look at that race car, the right rear tire. Yeah, it's, it's pretty damage. well damaged, on the, uh, especially on the front end of the car. Neil Bonnet had led laps 12 through 75, a total of 63 laps. He was in the lead when this accident occurred. And, and there you have the interview with Neil Bonnet and Andy. He, he does call it out. He got a blast, uh, blast the track there because they asked him if he was knocked out and he said, I thought I was for a minute. And then I realized there wasn't, there wasn't any help coming basically. <laughs> so he knew that it was going to be Finn for myself. Yeah, more or less to hell with it. If you ain't coming for me, I'll just walk out of here. No kidding. So Bonnet, hard hit. You feel sorry for him. He had, I'm pretty sure, I'm still convinced he had one of the best cars for the Daytona 500. Maybe the best car uh, beside Earnhardt and Bodine. 
and he's out at Daytona with a weird problem and then has an accident at Richmond has then has the problem at uh, Atlanta and now leading the race here at Bristol slams into the wall he's just definitely snake bit here early in 1986 yeah and of all the things as fast as the car was running then your throttle hangs oh. I mean that when that happens there is nothing you can do oh no you just hang on and hope for the best we, we do go back to green, and now we have Dale Earnhardt out front with Terry Labonte in second. We have uh, Ricky Red and Daryl Waltrip right on the tail of uh, Terry Labonte, so we have a four-car breakaway for the lead. Richard Petty has moved up into sixth place. He's running really strong early on in the race. I think one thing a lot of people forget is uh, – even though Richard, we, I mean, now we know Richard Petty won his last race in 1984, and I'm sure a lot of people probably think he was just an also ran, and he didn't know he didn't always have the strongest cars, but he's still running pretty good here in '86. He's it's not like he's just out there and as a novelty act. He's still competitive. Yeah, it wasn't like he was doing the farewell tour or nothing like that. He's he's still competitive most weeks, and like you say, six at Bristol. That's nothing to shake a stick at no and we learned that rain is falling a little bit again at bristol that's not going to stop them the track's already wet we might as well just keep going uh the top six they're all basically right together in a freight train uh, earnhardt appears to be kind of holding up the pack because he's got five cars right behind him but terry labonte just he cannot get around him uh we've clicked off 100 laps and we're still right together with uh, Terry Labonte still all over Dell Earnhardt. And we then have uh, some trouble for Jeff Bodine and a crash. And he drops he off the pace, pace. And Kyle Petty passes him. He is definitely slowing down and maybe coming into the pits. Yes, he is. Jeff Bodine, our pole sitter, heads for pit road. Now, again, we remind you that it's very, very wet. Down to a crash here on the main straightaway. Bobby Hillen Jr.'s car is on fire and hits the wall. Now another car involved. Dave Marcus spun, and Eddie Birchwall hit him. Bobby Hillen also involved. Hillen's car is against the outside retaining wall, and Dave Marcus and Eddie Birchwall's cars are on the infield in turn number one. Well, that was a lot happening all at once, Andy. We have Bodine having problems. He never really get out of the gate from the pole. And uh, as he comes into the pits, we have a crash on the track with uh, Bobby Hillen, Dave Marcus, and Eddie Burchwell. And you see the replay in progress, and you really can't tell what happened, but all three of those cars are definitely not continuing in this race. No, and there was two things that caught my eye right here in this whole little segment that just is amazing in this time is – Bodine, now pit road is still wet enough that he is throwing rooster tails driving down pit road with the water spraying out the back. And then after the wreck is over with, Dave Mark, or Marcus is out there showing the tow truck guys how to hook up his car so they don't hurt it no more. I'm like, you would never see a driver get out and actually crawl up under the car and hook it up for them so they don't mess it up no more. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Dave Marcus owned his own car. He didn't want him to tear it up any worse than it was already tore up at that point. <laughs> exactly. We we don't know what happens uh, from the replays, but uh, we do have Bobby Hillen coming in here, and he gives his uh, two cents on what happened. 
Danny, I'm here with the fellow that came out of the Miller American number eight, Bobby Hill. And Bobby, first of all, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. You know, uh, I guess uh, somebody got tangled up with Ron Bouchard. And I went low to avoid him and hit that water, and the car just accelerated into the wall. And, you know, I'd just like to uh, thank Miller and all Bro and Buick and Stavala Brothers and everybody that's uh, put this deal together. We're just going to keep fighting and trying to win a race someday. On a short track like this, in an accident, when it unfolds as quickly as it does, is there much that you as a driver can do? Well, I couldn't get your whole question, but, you know, there's not a lot you can do. You don't have much room to work with, especially when the inside of the track is so wet because you go to avoid it and you hit the water, the car just accelerates, you have no control. So, you know, really, there's not a whole lot you can do. We just uh, hope for better luck next time. <laughs> we hope for it, too. And Benny and Bob, remember, that's one of the things we brought up at the top of the telecast, how the rain and the precipitation here could cause problems. Absolutely. Daddy, are you all right? Yeah, Jackie, we're all right. Pull the car up. We got it running real good. We started off loose in the race. We had that pit stop. Got it tightened up. We were running real good. Uh, somebody got started crashing on the straightaway and had everything missed. Somebody hit Dave, knocked him down. Know, I got it real good. Well, Dave Marcus, who is on my right, you said somebody spun and you thought you were past the accident. Well, Jackie, Tim Richmond got up in the Ron Bouchard, got him up in the wall. And I seen it happening. I slowed down for it. Someone got into me from the rear and started me spinning. When I came down off the apron, there was really no place for Eddie to go. I seen him coming, and he just hit me. We've got a lot of bench sheet metal down here with the driver's wheel. Actually, that was the interview from Hillen, and then we also catch the interview there from uh, Dave Marcus and Eddie Burchwell together. And and we do learn from Bobby Hillen. Oh, he doesn't know exactly what happened. He, he knew that there was something happened in front of him, and he is a, a victim of the water, Andy. He uh, he goes down on... It's weird. You're talking about on the racing surface itself. I know that that's not a place that you're normally going to be on the inside of the front stretch, but he's still on the track, but he hits a big puddle of water and then hydroplanes and slams into the wall. That's, that's really what triggers this. Yeah, and you can see where he was at when he hit it because... He, w I mean, yeah, he was below the regular racing surface, but he's still on asphalt. It wasn't like he had hit the grass yet. Oh he? no, he's on the track. He's on the track and going through water. Um, I mean, back in 1986, we did not have uh, the the jet dryer. I mean, they didn't even have the jet dryers then. I don't think much much less like the Air Titans. No, no, I was surprised nobody had leaf blowers or something out there on pit road trying to dry it off. Yeah, I don't think they learned that trick until later. And then we we also hear from um, Eddie Bershwell and Dave Marcus and Andy. Any any comments on those two gentlemen? Oh, bless that Bershwell dude. He he sounds like the love child of Ward Burton and Boomhauer. <laughs> I don't know. It's it, he's got a he's got a strange dialect. I'll put it that way, and that's coming from a redneck. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's from Texas. Uh, uh, Dave Marcus is a very articulate person. You can definitely understand what he says uh, from Wausau, Wisconsin. And That's where I picked up that A thing. I was going to say, was he from Canada originally? Uh, nope, he's, but he is from Wisconsin. And um, he's one of the, he did have, uh, well, I don't know if this is, he had Olive Garden as a sponsor later in his career, and I know he frequented the the place quite a bit, but I think they, they had an interview with him a few years ago, and they talked about his appetite. And I mean, the man's not very big, but he, he was notorious for getting kicked out of all-you-can-eat buffets. <laughs> God bless you, sir. 
Dave Marcus, everybody. Um, so we are now back after the two crashes or after the crash that involves the three drivers. Dale Earnhardt still out front, Terry Labonte, uh, Ricky Red, Daryl Waltrip, Richard Petty, and then the Bandit uh, rounds out the top six. We have a good race for six between Harry Gant and Tim Richmond, or no, Rusty Wallace, who is uh, moving up through the field. Then we also have a race between Tim Richmond and Jeff Bodine, and they're they're commenting that Jeff Bodine's car, it's still not right. He's trying to come back up through the field, but he's in 12th, and he is definitely struggling. Yeah, you could tell he was he was losing power, but it was only coming in spurts. It, it was like he could run... 20 laps or so real good. And then he'd lose power for 20 laps. It, it was coming and going. Yeah, there was definitely something with this car. And one thing here early in the season, I'll note, and, and I'm sure that it's because, um, Tim Richmond is a new driver to the Hendrick, uh, stable in 1986. And he's just got Harry Hyde at his crew chief. And I know they based days of thunder basically on Tim Richmond and if it's the same similar storyline, I don't think Harry Hyde and Tim Richmond really gelled well right off the bat. I think Harry Hyde thought Tim Richmond was a moron, and he didn't know anything about a race car, but Tim Richmond knew how to drive a car, and they just had to get it together. And this is interesting early in the year, knowing that Richmond challenges for the, the championship, how he's just he's just there. He's not He's not running bad, but he is definitely not running good early in the year. Yeah, it's not the Tim Richmond that people are used to seeing on, you know, the sports center shows or anything like that later on. This is, I don't know, it, it, like you say, you could tell something was off, but you can't really tell what it is at this point. Yeah, I mean, a brand new team, and you got to think back in 1986, the uh, multi-car teams were very uncommon in NASCAR. We had Junior Johnson had his two cars with Waltrip and um, Neil Bonnet. But multi-car teams just wasn't a thing back then. So I'm sure trying to stretch your resources and and I'm willing to bet back then the teams really didn't share the information that they share now either. So it, it was a whole different ball game. It's almost just like a brand new team. Yeah, because like right now you've got uh, the the actual manufacturers want them to team up regardless of who the owner is. And back then, it, that's like if you put Waltrip and Bonnet racing for the win, they ain't going to treat each other like teammates. They're going to race each other just like their opponents. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that is one thing to, to look at. And I think that's one reason that Richmond struggles early in the year. He's just – it's a new team, and they're just trying to get used to each other. But he he picks it up. We're, we're going to have the summer of Tim coming up uh, before long. We're 143 laps into the race. Earnhardt is – in the lead, Labonte's still on his bumper. Uh, Petty has just blown by Waltrip to take fourth. I mean, Richard Petty was in it to win it at Bristol in 1986. Just really strong here in the first uh, quarter of the race. Oh, yes. And like you said, I just, I guess I, where I was so young at the time or whatever, I don't remember him being this strong. But it, it was good to see the 43 up there. Oh, yeah. It definitely gives people something to cheer for because he was still by far the most popular driver in the in the garage at that time. It wasn't even close. And we come, we have a commercial. We come back. Ronnie Thomas is being loaded into an ambulance with a leg injury. He hits the outside wall really hard going into turn three. And did they 
did he ride the wall for like a lap almost from the t- where he hit it to where he landed because he his throttle hung also I think's what they said. Yeah, so I believe if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to go back and look, but I believe he hit the turn three wall and made it all the way back around to the uh, almost back to turn three. I mean, he like I say he almost completed a lap against the wall. I don't know if it knocked him out when it hung up or what, but. Yeah, some, some it was it was definitely a bad hit. It was a hard hit. We this time Bo, Jeff Bodine doesn't pit under yellow because he had pitted the last time. So now him he's lining up with uh, Dell Earnhardt behind him on the restart. And this is the point in the race where uh, technology is not our friend and we lose audio for I don't know, maybe 50 laps or so. It's it's a while. We we lose audio, not a lot a good thing, not a lot happened right then. Uh, when we get our audio back, Terry Labonte has taken the lead, and he's about a half a second ahead of Dell Earnhardt and Rusty Wallace, and Wallace passes Earnhardt on the outside for second, and you can tell Rusty Wallace was uh, a factor in this race. He didn't qualify real well, but his car was hooked up. Oh, yeah, and they were talking about it in the interviews and stuff that he had given that his his car was going to be dominant if he just had a chance, and he had a he, chance. He was proving it here. Yeah, he, he definitely had the chance. We get the twenty seven of Wallace gets by Terry Labonte on the outside for the lead. All the while, he's smoking his right rear tire. Also, while he gets by Labonte, uh, Jack Root tells us that Jeff Bodine has terminal engine problems. So we are now halfway into the race. The mid mid-race recap we've had six leaders eight lead changes and five cautions out of the race the 94 71 uh bobby hillen is out morgan shepherd's out the 23 of michael waltrip neil bonnet joe rutman is temporarily out we also have uh, the five car of bodine in the garage and the 41 and the 98 so out of the race halfway through we've got like 10 cars out of the race already. That's one of the things we definitely talk about when, when people point to no many, no more cars on the lead lap back then and saying the races wasn't good. Attrition was just the thing in 1986. These cars tore up and they crashed more. Oh, definitely. And like you say, just out of those cars, you had, three or four that were contenders for the win. I mean, it wasn't like it was just some back-of-the-pack racer. They were actually contenders that went out. Oh, yeah. Jeff Bodine, Neil Bonnet, the 26 car, was he had been strong. Bobby Hillen's car had ran well a couple of races. Uh, so you, you definitely had some cars that were contenders out of the race completely. And uh, we, we learned that Joe Rutman is in the pits, and we get a uh, short interview with him with Jack Root. Is with Jack in the pit area. And Joe is still staying strapped in his Quaker State machine. Joe, what is taking you out of the race so far? Well, Jackie, uh, it appears the upper control arm that holds the right front wheel on is broken. And the only way I could tell is by the way the car steered. And uh, I think you might be able to get a shot of it out in the front of the car that the shaft on the right front upper control arm broke. And I could feel it in the steering. And so we uh, we thought maybe it was a tire. And when we determined it wasn't the tire, then we decided we better take a look at something mechanical. 
Well, this is not the type of place that you want to run without an upper control arm. Gentlemen? That's for sure. The tight high banks of Bristol, very demanding. We have... Andy, all I picked up from that is uh, Joe Rutman had a shaft problem. <laughs> well, well, uh, yeah, you you could say that, and if you got if you got that shaft problem, you're definitely in trouble because that car ain't gonna turn. No, and this would be an appropriate time if Blue Chew would like to sponsor us. We have the perfect plug for you right now. That's right, because if you have shaft problems, Blue Chew will take care of that. Join the Chew World Order. We are now back uh, to the actual race. Rusty Wallace with a seven-second lead over Earnhardt. He is just absolutely kicking the crap out of the cars here uh, halfway through the race. There is a good race between uh, Bill Elliott, Daryl Waltrip, Harry Gant, and Ricky Rudd for fourth position. We get Daryl Waltrip. He gets, by, he gets by Bill Elliott after a few laps. And then we see the 26 back out on the track. So he's had his blue chew and he's back raring to go 200 laps to go in the race. And, uh, Oh, smoking Joe Rutman's back on the track. Harry Gant has went by Bill Elliott for fifth. They, they had some, this race had some lulls and, and, and ultimately Rusty Wallace does. He, he's just got the dominant car, but we do have a lot. At least they show the racing that's taking place between like fourth through seventh because there's some good battles going on there. Oh, definitely. And that's what I, I like about this coverage is, okay, if the leader, if he's gone and ain't nobody around him, fine. We're going to go back to second through fifth because you got five car, you know, five car pack right there just bouncing off each other and driving around, you know, show where the excitement is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we get a we um we go back to Rusty Wallace, who still has the big lead, and then Dale Earnhardt is spinning. Terry Labonte's spinning. Neither neither one of them has much damage, but because of the way they spun out, they were both lapped by Rusty Wallace, which is a, a factor here. And we we get a replay that shows that Alan Kowicki. I don't know if he was trying to get down out of the way or if he kind of lost it. Earnhardt was under him, and they just kind of come together, and Kowicki hits the wall, and Earnhardt spins, and then Labonte spins trying to to miss the wreck. It's It doesn't really tear anybody up except Kowicki, and, um, I mean, he still continues. But it, it's definitely a turning point in the race because Earnhardt, who was running second, all, and Labonte, who was, who was running third or fourth at the time, now all of a sudden both of them are a lap down. Yeah, and with the way Rusty was running so far in this race, that's not a good thing to have happen. Oh, no, no. Rusty Wallace, you definitely don't want – no lucky dogs or wave arounds in 1986. No. We um, we get pit stops. I still don't have a clue how they're coming in. All I know is we get, we're on a restart out of this uh, caution. Rusty Wallace is in the lead. Daryl Waltrip behind him. Uh, we have the seven car of Kyle Petty trying to get his lap back. And I, Richard Petty, had, he had been running really well. And I don't know what happened to him. He had dropped back some. And and then uh, Morgan Shepard is getting into his car as a relief driver. And honestly, I don't know if they really say why Petty climbs out of the car at this time. Did they say during the broadcast that you remember? I went back and watched it two or three times, especially right there where they had the caution or the had him on pit road where they were tightening the belts. I I never did hear him say why he got out. Huh. 
maybe we'll uh, have to research that and see what happened. We, um, anyway, it, it takes him a little while to get him out of the car and, and that, that ruins the 43's race for all intents and purposes. And, uh, he's, he's pretty well done after that. The, uh, we have, we have Daryl Waltrip under the, under Rusty Walls for the lead and, uh, the tree, the tree, the three of Earnhardt and the tree also trying to pass Wallace. We have Tim Richmond also going by Wallace and the, the 44 of Labonte going by Wallace. And uh, is, Wallace was just really dominant. And all of a sudden, Andy, he's dropping. Yeah. And the bad part is Parson calls it. He calls it before they ever talk to anybody. He's like, well, he, he obviously got a mismatched set of tires. That's what the problem is. He ain't, he ain't being able to take the turns as good as he was. And then sure enough, we find out later on that's the case. Oh, yeah. The, uh, it, it's We find out that there's definitely a problem with Wallace, and, and that's what it was. We uh, Jack Root, he, he does come out there and say that Wallace has a push is part of the problem. We have Daryl Waltrip trying to keep Earnhardt a lap down, which is an interesting role reversal from Richmond because the whole Richmond race, basically, it was Earnhardt trying to keep Waltrip a lap down, and now the roles are reversed. And I'm going booting, booting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, uh, I, I'm sure Earnhardt at that point in time knew better than to hit Waltrip again because he was already skating on thin ice with NASCAR and another shot to the 11 car, and he probably would have been parked a race or two. Yeah, I'd say he was playing a fine line there. You know, if if it had been the last lap coming down for the checker flag, eh, there ain't no telling, you know. But right here at this point in the race, yeah, he wasn't going to take him out. No. We have um, – we have a caution, and Dale Earnhardt does edge by Darrell Waltrip to get the lap back. Uh, it was a minor, minor incident. I think was that the. Uh, I don't even know if anything. Happened. I think it was a, a blown, a blown engine by Doug Heveron. I think is what uh, what caused that caution. Yep. So we are back under green after they clean that up, and. Uh, Daryl Waltrip and Rusty Wallace are racing hard for the lead off the restart. 129 laps to go. They're talking about weather. Uh, the the way, it, I, I know it's probably everybody says the weather wherever they're at is it changes all the time, but it really does here in East Tennessee. The race had started in the rain. It rained and drizzled some, and then the sun came out for a while, and it was bright sunshine, and now it's looking like it's going to rain again. Every 15 minutes is an adventure here to figure out what what's going to happen with our weather. Oh, definitely. That's like you always hear them say, if you want it to rain or snow or do something like that, bring the fire to town or have a race at Bristol. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, def- have a race at Bristol. It's something will happen. We have uh, Daryl Waltrip. He's edging away from the 27 on this restart. We get down to 120 laps to go. Waltrip in the lead. Wallace second. Harry Gant. Ricky Rudd having a strong race. He's kind of just hung around the top five the whole race. Uh, Dale Earnhardt in fifth. And then also the last two cars on the lead lap were Bobby Allison and Bill Elliott. And this is something else to remember. Allison is, um, he's basically driving a, a new car himself. So he's not as, he's not showing as strongly as he 
has in the has in the past or will in the future, I think he's kind of in the same boat as Richmond with trying to trying to adjust to a new car. Oh, definitely, because you got to figure out. I mean, between it's just like a coach and a, and a team. They have to learn how to communicate with each other. What does the other one want? What will the other one be willing to bend on to maybe make it better? And you have to learn to trust the other person to know that they've got your best intentions, and then you can move forward and have a better relationship. That, yes, for sure. Um, we have a lot of hard racing going on here. Uh, Rusty Wallace has closed back on back in on Darrell Waltrip, and he's putting pressure on him for the lead. We get a shot of Junior Johnson, and he's basically expressionless. He's just staring into the black hole of the of the Bristol track. He, you couldn't tell if he was happy, mad, sad. He always, he never wore an emotion on a sleeve. Junior Johnson always had that look like he was a half a second away from killing someone at any given moment. Yeah, every time you see him, you don't know if he's mad at somebody or if he really has to take a crap. I don't know. It's a it's a strange look. He 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 does have that strained look. We um, have a lot of hard racing going on up front. Dell Earnhardt passes Harry Gant for fourth, and about that same time, Rusty Wallace takes over the lead from Daryl Waltrip with a hundred laps to go. Uh, lap four twelve, we have. Ricky Rudd closing in on Waltrip and Rusty Wallace is checking out. If we click off a few more laps and now the um, three of Earnhardt has caught Waltrip and Rudd. Uh, both both of them get by Waltrip in the next couple of laps. Then Dell Earnhardt gets by the by Rudd, but Rusty Wallace he's still he's just he's gone. He's way out in front and he is checking out, Andy. Yeah, I mean, he was on a rail. He had a rocket strapped to his ass, whatever you want to call it. He was out of there. We finally, we have a pretty good race for second. Dale Earnhardt finally gets around Rudd with about uh, 30 laps to go. And the the race, the uh, the video uploaded on YouTube kind of jumps around a little bit. I think we, we miss some of it a little bit, just a few laps here and there, but... We, uh, we come back and we see Rusty Wallace. He's lapping Harry Gant, who's, who's in fifth place, and we're down to 10 laps to go. Um, we have the 15 of Rudd and Darrell Walter bracing hard for position. And this is – you never usually would say this at Bristol. Most of the time back then you'd be like, we have, we've had too many cautions, too many caution flag laps. But this is one time at Bristol where you'd say, man, we need a caution. We need we need something to bunch it up for a, a late race restart. Yeah, somebody bump somebody, throw a water bottle after. I don't know if they'd have done it at this point, seeing as how there was water on the track anyway. But Yeah, throw a caution for water on the track, something, <laughs> just to, to keep it going. But we, we're down to the nitty-gritty, and we will just let uh, – we have Dell Earnhardt, who's who has some problems – and then uh, we have the end of the race, so we're going to let Bob and Benny take you home. Earnhardt smoking in turn number four. The car smoking very badly. He drops to the inside of the racetrack. 
The car is still under power, but Dale Earnhardt, who is running second, appears to be finished for the afternoon. He drops down to the inside of the racetrack. He's going to make it to the pit area, it appears, and there will be no yellow. There will be three laps to go when Rusty Wallace crosses the strike next time. That's three is Dale Earnhardt's unlucky number, and it's a number on the side of his race car because he keeps falling out of these races with three laps to go. Fuel has been the main problem with uh, Dale Earnhardt, but this is not a fuel problem. That engine is sick. He's just trying to make all the laps he possibly can because it might mean four or five spots. One to rather 498 laps completed. Two more laps for Rusty Wallace. Less than a mile of racing now for the young driver from Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri his way to his first Winston Cup win, will become the fifth driver, fifth different driver to win this year, and the fifth different make of car to visit victory lane this year. White flag is out. Harold Kinder has put the white flag on Rusty Wallace. Just a half a lap. He's on the back straightaway. Going in turn three. He can almost smell the checkered flag from here. Off the fourth corner, Rusty Wallace wins the Valleydale 500 and his first Winston Cup race ever. He already has his hand outside of the side of the car, saluting and waving. Earnhardt crosses the stripe under the checkered, but the car is just barely moving. And Ricky Rudd and uh, Daryl Waltrip, who were battling also for position, Ricky Rudd wins second position and Waltrip third. An unbelievable story here this afternoon as Rusty Wallace started 14th. He took the lead on lap 239 for the first time and led a total of 174 of the 500 laps. Rusty Wallace wins here today. We'll be back to talk with him in a moment. 500 from Bristol International Raceway has been won by Rusty Wallace. Let's go down to Victory Lane where Jack Aroot is with Rusty. And you won't find a happier Victory Lane than with this guy right here, your first Winston Cup victory of your career. Congratulations, Rusty. How does it feel? Oh, I can't hardly, I can't, just can't say a word, you know, it was great. Uh, I just wish my wife Patty was here to, to share this with me. You know, it's a dream of a lifetime of Barry Dodson, Raymond Beadle, Rich Matera with Al Ugard, all the people, they did a, they did a great job, you know, and uh, I can't say enough about Barry Dodson and Jimmy Makehart, everybody, you know, if it, without these guys, I just couldn't have made it. It was just uh, something that uh, I didn't think it ever happened because I worked so hard and so hard, and uh, that last 30 laps seemed like 200, I'll tell you, and I just kept driving every line just as, as careful as I could, and uh, 50 laps in a race, I said, boy, I wish there was just one more lap left, and then that one lap come on, I said, thank God. Now listen, earlier in the week, you were quoted in the local papers as saying, the car feels good. I'm not only going to win, I'm going to dominate. Are you being a prophet now before you score your first victory? Well, no, sir. That, that was a misunderstanding. I just said the car was running good, and they asked me if, who's going to dominate the race, and I said, I don't think there's any going to be any one person who's going to do it, but if there anybody, is anybody could do it, it would be the Blue Max team, because our car's running that well, and this this wins for their, these guys. They pulled it off. Harold Elliott, our engine builder, he just did, oh, what a fabulous job. That motor run like a clock all day long, and uh, those pit stops are unreal. But thanks a lot to the sponsor, Goodyear, and God for having a safe race. Well, I tell you what, I got all your crew behind us here. What do you guys think? Pretty good for a first victory, wasn't it? Well, that about says it all here from Victory Lane. Bob, Benny? All right, thank you, Jack. Well, there you have it. Uh, Dale Earnhardt basically blows up, but he, he limps around the track for the last few laps. 
Rusty Wallace, no problem. He holds him off, and he wins by almost 11 seconds, Andy, over over Ricky Rudd in second. And Rusty Wallace, that was his first ever NASCAR win. And if you're going to win your first race, why not just do it when you just kick the shit out of people? And, you know, being an Earnhardt fan, I never was a fan of Rusty. He was – that was just not going to happen. But you gotta give you gotta give him credit. I mean, he had enough balls to say, "Look, if I can get out there, I'm gonna dominate this race," and then goes out and does it. So, salute to him for sure. Rusty Wallace winning his first ever NASCAR race at Bristol. He would go on to be able to get around the short tracks pretty good in his career. And you've got to think. I know that you see that car and the the Blue Max Alugard car. Uh, that's the same car Rusty would go ahead and he win his only title in uh, 1989 in that same car. Yeah, yeah, he made a halfway decent name for himself later on. You know, he, he did. I yeah, he, he did I, okay. He did okay. <laughs> then he goes on to race for Roger Penske, and he he never wins another title. He wins a lot of races, but uh, never could win a title uh, racing for Penske. Now, one thing. I think some people don't realize the the um, the 27 car. It may not have been the best car uh, per se back then, but that is the car that Tim Richmond had drove the the previous couple of years uh, when it was sponsored by Old Milwaukee. So it wasn't like it was a um, one of the more underfunded cars. It just wasn't one of the ones that was always up front. Yeah, what well, uh, what you might call a mid pack, you know, type of deal. It, it could run good sometimes but you never didn't know what you was going to get no so we have the final rundown uh rusty De wallace does win the race for about 11 seconds over ricky red daryl waltrip is the only other car that finishes on the lead lap and in some uh post race uh analytics i was looking at some stats and some news we we find out that daryl waltrip dropped a gear toward the end of the race and that's that's why he dropped back now i'm not saying he had anything for wallace but he was in the lead and uh he looked like he was kind of the only guy that maybe could run with wallace at the time and and that's why we find out later on that waltrip uh, dropped back so he finishes third harry gant and bill elliott round out the top five bobby allison uh one lap down in sixth terry labani was two laps down in seventh tim richmond two laps down in eighth Kyle Petty, three laps down in ninth, and Dale Earnhardt, even though he was blowing up for the last four laps, he he only finishes three laps down, and he still finishes in the top ten, even though he blew up four laps to go. Oh, who needs a motor? He probably flintstoned it around the rest of the way. (laughs) Very possible. Twelve DNFs in this race in a 32-car field. We have only seven cautions at Bristol for 56 laps. Uh, Fourteen lead changes uh driver points after this race daryl waltrip is still the points leader at this point with 825 points terry labani in second 31 points behind dell earnhardt 58 point now this is way before the we had the one point one point one point thing the points were like 185 175 so 31 points was nothing uh, uh, 90 points was nothing rusty wallace was 90 points behind in fourth Bill Elliott in fifth, uh, Jeff Bodine, Kyle Petty, Harry Gant, Tim Richmond, and Richard Petty round out the top 10 in the uh, point standings. So, Andy, post-race wrap-up, we'll do our 
usual awards. I don't think that there's any way we can argue who the driver of the race is here. Uh, unless you throw me a big curveball, who is your driver of the race? No, I, I don't have that good of a curveball without being completely dishonest with everybody. It had to be Wallace. He called it. He did it. You got to give him the credit. Yeah. I mean, for a guy that had never won a race at all to say that, you know, he could, he could kick their hind in if he had the chance. He, he called his shot. That's like, it's not like Babe Ruth pointing to the outfield and calling the iconic shot. That's more like a triple a AAA player in his first ever at bat in the world series calling the shot. Like, yep, I'm going yard and it's going to happen. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to hit four home runs off of every picture they put out there and they ain't nothing they can do about it. Yeah. He backed it up. What, uh, Andy, what was your critical moment of this race? What, what moment changed it for you? The one that got me was, uh, the wreck that put Earnhardt and Labonte a lap down. Cause you had two of the top five cars there and now they've got to work double time to try and get their lap back and try to get back in the top five. Yeah, that's a good one. Even though they weren't torn up, it definitely put them both a lap down. And with Wallace having such a good car, um, well, that was a good moment to pick. I, I had Bonnet blowing the tire and hitting the wall because he was um, he had a good car and you don't know what would have happened later in the race, but he was leading the race and didn't look like he was being challenged any when it, when uh, he, he got knocked out. So that's mine. Uh, what was the, mo- what was the thing that surprised you most about this race? My biggest surprise was the fact that nobody got hurt on pit road. I mean, it, you have to go back and see this people. It, it was a swamp. The water was still standing and they were coming in wide open, slamming on the brakes and sliding through about four pit stalls before they ever got stopped. And no, as far as I know, no crew member or anybody got hit. It was just amazing. Yeah, definitely. I, I, uh, I guess my, my most surprising moment was, um, no more cautions at Bristol than they had, uh, basically going the last 150 laps without a caution at Bristol and, and then just how much Rusty Wallace just absolutely stomped them. It, you don't usually see a guy win his, I, I'm not sure how many guys have ever won their first race in that kind of impressive fashion. Usually your first race is, is a nail biter, knockdown drag out, but he made it look easy. Well, you, you got a point. Cause I mean, like, well, if you think of modern drivers, Har- Harvick and all these other guys, about every one of their first race was either something lucky happened for them or unlucky happened to somebody else. And it's usually within a second they're you know, like Harvick, he was beating and banging coming down to the finish line, but Rusty just run away from him. It was awful. Yeah, just just had a really really strong um, outing. Andy, who would you give your goodies headache powder award to at Bristol? <laughs> there is no question. I don't think there's any question on this one. When Bonnie hit the wall and you don't see the net come down, you don't see no movement, and even when you do see movement, he's addled. You know he had to take four or five goodies the next morning just to get rid of the headache. Yeah, I, I got to give it to Neil Bonnet also. For, for two, I, even if he wouldn't have been leading, the shot that he took was pretty hardcore. But uh, you also couple it in with the fact that he's needing a good race and he's leading this race, and then he takes that kind of a shot and gets absolutely no help from the track workers. So Neil Bonnet with the <laughs> Goodies Headache Powder Award. 
Uh, race rating, Andy, I'm interested to see what you say this week, uh, cause we're at Bristol and usually you'd think Bristol's going to be really exciting. And I think the first 300 laps was real good. And then the last 200 wasn't quite as quite as on point. So what do you, uh, what do you give the race? Also, I, up and up until the last 150 laps, I'd probably give it a high eighties, but with the way it ended, I had to drop it down to 70. I mean, it's, it held you for the first half of the race, and then the second half, you could have took a nap. Yeah, I, I give it a 78. Maybe being a little I, – I gave the first half of the race uh, a lot of credit, so that probably bumped it up a little bit. Um, entertainment factor. Now, last week th- – this is interesting because this is one of those things where ESPN is so good at what they do they don't make mistakes. I love Bob and Benny and they did a great job with the broadcast. But as far as actually just being entertained by the stupidness, you don't have any here because Bob and Benny are so good. So what did you give the entertainment factor on this race? This is where I had to go the other way with it. Cause I had to give them an 85 because it, Benny Parsons himself brings the score up because of his knowledge and how, he, it's like he has a sixth sense where he's been racing so long that he can tell what happened to the car, why it happened, what you know, what broke on the car, and then 30 laps later, the pit reporter's telling you exactly what he just said, and they're giving him credit for a good guess. And I'm like, no, he, he knew that was not a guess. He didn't say, I think. He said, this is what happened. Yeah. Just that fact alone bumped the score up for me. Oh, yeah, I, I gave it an 82. I, I, I wasn't crapping on it because ESPN's got such a good broadcast. It's just, it wasn't the train wreck that uh, Mr. Lampley and uh, and his associate was last week uh, for the ABC broadcast. ESPN actually, they knew NASCAR back in the day. They, they knew how to cover it. Oh, yeah. Well, both of them were entertaining just for different purposes. Yeah, <laughs> way, way different reasons. Uh, so, Andy... Um, any closing thoughts here on, on the Bristol race? <laughs> Just that I was, when I heard we were going to do Bristol next, I was really excited and I was still for the first half and a little bit let down, but still I, I enjoyed watching the race. I could watch the whole thing through and that was something that I've missed lately. Yeah. They're not all going to be uh barn burners and, and every race you're taking away a little something and I'm getting a little more wrapped up into the 1986 thing. Now, the first few races, I mean, I kind of recognized the cars and I knew a lot of who drove what, but now I can just, in my notes, I can just throw the numbers down and just roll, roll off the drivers pretty much because I'm, I'm invested in them already. I know Ricky Rudd's having a, a pretty strong year in his Ford. He's kind of running quiet, but he's, he's always up in it with the motorcraft car Joe Rutman is running the new Kenny Bernstein Quaker State car, and he's doing a pretty good job when he's out there. Neil Bonnet is just snake bit. We, we've talked about Tim Richmond with the new team with Hendrick. Uh, Jeff Bodine and Earnhardt have been – they've been dominant in their own ways, just not a lot to show for it yet. That's really weird. Bodine's got one win so far. Earnhardt has no wins on the year, and they've really been the best two cars. Oh, yeah, and that's another thing I've been doing with this is it's so far back that I honestly don't remember all the details. So I'm trying my best to only go week by week like I would if it was actually happening right now. And that 
bumps the entertainment up for me a little bit. And I don't know, like you say, you, you get yourself invested. It's almost like watching an old Andy Griffin episode or something. You pretty well know what's going to happen, but it's the same time you have to watch it. Yeah, definitely. So next week, our show, we will go to the uh, Trans South 500 at Darlington. And we know back then, Darlington, I mean, it's always been called the track too tough to tame. My God, the way they slide these cars around in 1986, I can't, I can't wait to see what kind of race uh, we'll get out of Darlington uh, next week. It should be a fender banger. It definitely should be. So if, uh, once again, some plugs for the show before we go off, uh, Facebook group racing through time, top us, top it in, join our Facebook group. You'll see when the episodes are released, you can leave us some comments there. We'll try to read things on the air that you, uh, you may want to comment on a race or a memory you have from a race. And we will be happy to, uh, to, to read as much as we can on the air. You can email us at racingthroughtimeproject at gmail.com. And I would have shortened that if I could, but all these other email addresses were taken. So racingthroughtimeproject at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at OPR Word. You can follow uh, On Pit Road at On Pit Road on Twitter. And like I said, our shows, we drop on soundcloud um apple itunes and stitcher are the main three avenues to listen to the show and we post on various facebook groups so uh, definitely check us out and any uh final thoughts before we wrap up bristol 1986 no i just want to say that i'm having a ball doing this and i hope that we can continue going on and if anybody has any comments, critiques, anything we can do better, we'll listen and we will try our best to make your show as good as we can. Oh yeah, I mean we know, we know for sure. We're we're not insiders. We're just two idiots in Tennessee talking about races from 1986. So you know, if there's something you you want us to do uh, that you think might help us, or you you like something we do and you want us to do more of it, let let us know. Um, we definitely will try to continue to. Um, source newspaper articles uh going into the week Th- this week was just weird there was a couple of weeks between the last race at atlanta and bristol and there just there wasn't a whole lot happened i guess because uh, atlanta wasn't a controversial race uh, even though it had an upset winner there just wasn't a whole lot of news but anytime uh, there's news between the races we will definitely try to bring that news to you and we will be back next week for the trans south 500 at Darlington Raceway. So for Andy Waddell, I'm Ricky Wittenberg saying another racing through time in the books.